If I would ask you to define the greatest evidence or proof of a Christian's life, what would you say? Would you say it's someone who is always at church on Sunday morning and never misses a Wednesday evening? Or would it be someone who never fails to put money in the offering basket on Sunday morning? Or someone who always goes along on street ministry? Those things are important. But Jesus said something in the Sermon on the Mount I'd like to read to you. Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 to 20. Matthew chapter 7, verses 16 to 20. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. So consequently, by our fruits we are known. A genuine Christian will be producing good fruits or fruit that is consistent with his master. And I propose to you that the greatest evidence for a Christian in his life, his Christian life, is a demonstrating of the visible fruit of the Spirit. Visible fruit that people can see in your life and my life is the greatest evidence that we are a Christian. So what kind of fruit should we be interested in? Yes, those things that I mentioned earlier, our attendance and putting money in the offering, those things are important. But I'd like to consider this morning a little bit about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. When it says there in verse 22, but, uh, it's a contrast to the verses that came just before. Those things that a person... the do by the flesh, verse 19, now the works of the flesh are manifest, or they're visible, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and so on. Those things are evident. But also, the Christian in his life, his fruit uh, is also evident, which is the fruit of the Spirit. So it's not my objective this morning to consider all nine of the fruit of the Spirit. We'd be here a long time, not planning to do that. But I'd like to consider one fruit of the Spirit this morning, just one, and which one is it? I'd like to consider the last one, and we call that temperance, which is self-control. And why do I bring this sermon this morning? I bring this sermon this morning because temperance and self-control is an area that I need to grow in. And if you all want to follow along and be my guest. Title of the message, Self-Control, Proof of a Changed Life. <clears throat> For a text this morning, I invite you to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses, verse 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 25. 
And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we and incorruptible. Paul is using the analogy here of the Olympic Games. And in another version, it reads this way. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict, strict training. And so those who are intending to compete in the Olympic Games, they go to tremendous lengths to obtain a little piece of gold on a string, a gold coin that they wear around their neck or whatever. They go to tremendous lengths to obtain that gold coin. And they deny themselves a lot of luxuries and they go into harsh training to give themselves the advantage over others. Well, what is intemperance, the opposite of temperance? Intemperance is the giving in to the unrestrained passions and appetites of the body. Now, I didn't bring along my rules and discipline this morning, but on pages 38 and 39, you know in there that we ask complete abstinence from alcohol and tobacco. And we are to preach about those things. But it also goes on to say this, and I quote, Temperance also applies to other areas of the care of the body. Therefore, anxiety, worry, anger, covetousness, overwork, gluttony, and the like are forms of intemperance and sins against the body and the Lord. Like I said, there's many aspects of temperance that we, all, we could consider this morning. I'd like to consider three. And I'm sure you could maybe think of other ones that I've overlooked, but I'd like to consider three. The first one is the food that we eat. Brother Dave, you were not the only one who was impacted by what Brother Phillips said about those that you were not, that maybe were not here Brother Philip talked about the other evening having a 10-pound belt around here of extra weight um, that he didn't know how to get rid of. And he said something about his wife had prepared some really good chocolate chip cookies, and he ate three or four of them, like a lot of us do. And he talked about this extra 10 pounds of weight that he had around his middle. Well, that resonated with me too because I think the belt that I carry is bigger than Philip's belt. So this message on temperance is personal to me and it was a challenge to me. I did a little checking and we all know that there's an overabundance of food in America. We know that. And America spends less of their income on food than any country in the world. Americans spend 6% of their money. Now we might complain, you might complain when you go to the grocery store that these prices are getting exorbitant, but you're paying much less than the average countries in our world today. Switzerland spends 10% of their money on food. Guatemala spends 41% of their money or their income on food and the most expensive food in the world is the Niger those from Nigeria they spend 56% of their money on food so over half of their income goes to food 
And then as I thought about that, I was thinking about, well, what about obesity? Vietnam is the country with the least people who are obese. There's only 2% of people in Vietnam that are obese. The United States has the most obesity. It's 36% of people, or almost four out of 10 people in the United States are obese. And I'd like to ask the question to you and to me, do we eat to live or do we live to eat? Some time ago, you probably remember that Nathan Hurst read something called Reinhold's Room. Some of you have heard it, some of it you haven't. I'm going to read it for those of you who have not heard it. This is called Reinhold's Room. In medieval times, there was a war between two brothers attempting to control their father's empire. The younger brother triumphed over the older brother. Reinhold was captured, and the younger brother took him to his castle as a prisoner. The younger brother built a special room in his castle for Reinhold. This room was like any other room with a standard-sized door. Reinhold was placed in this room, and the door was left open. Reinhold could leave any time he wanted to, but there was one problem. Reinhold lived a life of excess, and he was very fat. He could not fit through a standard door. Therefore, he was a prisoner. The younger brother made sure that there was the most delectable food set before Reinhold every day. Reinhold was a prisoner in this room for 10 years. He longed to be free from his prison, but he remained a prisoner because of his own excesses. We can somewhat snicker at that story, but I think we better be careful. There may be a whole lot more truth in that story for you and for me than we care to admit. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read that from the NIV. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 and 13. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but catch this, but I will not be mastered by anything. Sounds like temperance. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. Paul said, I will not be mastered by anything. I'd like to also read what Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verse 34. Luke chapter 21, verse 34. Jesus said this. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and so that that day come upon you unawares. For as a snare shall it come on all of them that dwell on the face of the whole earth. And I looked up that word in the dictionary, surfeit, and it means this, an overindulgence, especially in food and drink, and it causes dis discomfort, and nausea that results from any kind of excess, I'm sorry, 
discomfort and nausea resulting from any kind of excess. And what does it do? It has a numbing effect on our spiritual awareness. I think we recognize that. An overindulgence has a spiritually numbing effect on our awareness of spiritual things. And I want you to know that I'm not against food, I'm not against fellowship meals, I'm not against community suppers. But I would like to say one thing that you might run me out of here after the service, I'm not sure. I'd like to ask a question. However, are we, trend, are we trending toward bolstering our attendance and filling our pews by appealing to the flesh? Uh, you can make that judgment. What do you think? Maybe in the last five years, are we trending toward bolstering our attendance or filling our pews by appealing to the flesh? And once again, I'm not against that. I, I voted for the packing that Samuel was talking about. I voted for that. And I'm fine, you know, that to have some ice cream after, after it. But I guess I'm thinking about some of our regular worship services. Are we trending and, you know, having more and more meals and appealing to people uh, through food. And I just want to put a caution into us that we're careful about that. Jesus faced the same dilemma in John chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. Jesus said this, John chapter 6, verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Ye seek me not because ye saw miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. Unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. John 4, verses 31 and 35. If you remember Jesus there meeting with the woman at the well, Jesus said this toward the end of that interchange, John 4, 31 to 35. Jesus said, In the meanwhile his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus said unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. The food we eat. Secondly, the money we spend. I pulled out an old manual from years and years ago. Anybody here, I'm sure there's a few of you, remember Lester Miller and his uh, addressing our conference on financial issues? Okay, some of us older ones do. I uh, pulled a few quotes from his book, Biblical Financial Guidelines. He said this, More is said in the New Testament about money than heaven or hell combined. Secondly, two-thirds of the parables deal with finances. Thirdly, 50% of Jesus' teaching had to do with attitudes and actions concerning wealth. Now this morning, if after the sermon we go to go back and I invite Brother Elam to come along with me back the aisle, 
Uh, how many of you would be willing to surrender your checkbook to him for his perusal? Now, Brother Elam wouldn't do that. He don't need to do it. But I would tell you there is someone who knows. Matthew 6, 24, the Bible says, I should be able to quote this. Matthew 6, 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or you cannot serve God and money. Luke, I'm going to move through these fairly quickly. Just some verses for us to consider about the money that we spend. Luke 16, verses 10 to 14. <clears throat> Let me read that from the NIV. Luke 16, 10 to 14. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. God knows our hearts. He knows our checkbooks. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. One more, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Now it is required of those who have been given a trust, required of those given a trust must prove faithful. So God desires that we be faithful with the money that we spend. Most of us probably have more money available to us than we used to. Sally and I are at a different stage in life. I can remember years ago when we were raising our family, there were times that we needed to go to our change dish and pull change out to get a gallon of milk. Well, we don't have to do that anymore. But we are still responsible. We are accountable for the money that we have. How do we spend it? What about you? I don't have time this morning to get into the importance of tithing. How, how do you feel about tithing? Do you recognize who is the owner? Who is the source of the wealth that you have? Freely you have received, freely give. God has been good to us, and I'll not get into tithing. So, thirdly, the last point of the message, what about the words that we say? How many words do you say in a day's time? Now, maybe this is fallacy, but I did go to the Internet and look at this one. One report said we average about 7,000 words a day. But I went to another one. Another one said women speak 5,000 words a day and men speak 2,000 words a day. But it said, however, on average, 
both the men and the women, they speak 500 to 700 words of actual value or communicating something very important. I'm not here to, to endorse or embrace what is said on the internet. But what about our words? How important? Are we using our words to build each other up? Are we using these important words? Thinking about the words that we say. Um, James 3, 1 to 10. I read this quickly from the NIV. You know what I, where we're going. James 3 speaks of our words. James 3, verses 1 to 10. Now many of you should presume, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to keep the whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are still steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force to sit on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person and sets the whole course of his life on fire and it itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. So it's outside of the realm of mankind to tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both men, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring and so on? What about our words? The importance of words, the importance of self-control. And I would say that the beauty and the overriding influence of self-control, that is beautiful. How important are the words that you say? Matthew 12, 35 to 37. Matthew 12, 35 to 37. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you, that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So I know that it, it's a huge, as we think about temperance, there's a lot in life that I did not talk about this morning. But as you think about the food you eat, as you think about the money you spend, if you think about the words that you say, are you, am I, are we being self-controlled? Are we people of temperance? In conclusion, you know, you can assure someone of an apple tree or a cherry tree by the bark or the leaves 
or by the blossoms. You can say, I know a cherry tree. I know what they look like. The bark is such and such. But what is the really telling factor? What is What gives clear evidence and proof? Is it not the visible fruit? You see cherries. We have a cherry tree right now that, that it has the actual fruit. We know that's a cherry tree. And you can say that a person is a Christian by your own observations, but the real proof is evidenced by the obvious and visible fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness, gentleness, and also temperance that we looked at this morning. It's... Is self-control a fruit that is clearly visible in your life and in mine? I'd like to close with God's word as it relates, as we think about temperance from Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. God's word says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. May God bless you to that end. May you and I be people that have fruit, visible fruit that the people can see that there are fruits of the Spirit and that we are self-controlled, we are temperate people because the Holy Spirit is living within our life, in our heart. May God bless you to that end and shall we have a song.